All right, and we are back for another edition of Exploring Faith and Pursuing Grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. Tonight, we are going to talk about something that I have wanted to talk about for a good long while. This is a subject that is near and dear to my heart because it has been a point of consternation in many of the previous relationships that I have had. It has also been a point of consternation for many, many Christians specifically, and I would say mostly uh, our Christian sisters. This has been something that has caused no shortage of anxiety for my wife, for other Christian women who have grown up in heavily, I would say, legalistic circles and faiths, not only within the churches of Christ, but even more so in the Pentecostal circles and especially within the One Cup churches of Christ, and that is modesty. Modesty is one of those topics that is a real hot button issue for a lot of people. This is one of those things that a lot of women and some men struggle with. This is one of those topics that left unchecked and left unfettered leads to body image issues, body dysmorphia issues. It can lead to eating disorders and all manner of neurological and psychological dysfunctions whenever this subject is not treated appropriately and it's not presented well. So this is one of those things where I know in the past I've been accused of just wanting to be able to walk around wherever I want on the beach or without a shirt, or you just want to go to a water park or do this or do that. You just want to justify whatever you want. This episode isn't a justification of what some would call sin. This episode isn't intended to just allow us to justify whatever we want This is heavy. This is real. This is something that affects people on a very, very deep level. And it has ruined lives because of how much these perspectives have been misapplied and taken out of context. And so this is something that I take very seriously. It's something Kevin takes very seriously. And I'm saying all of that to say this, I'm probably going to get fired up during this episode. (laughs) You're probably going to hear old school preacher Lee come out. You may even hear a little bit of really old hockey temper Lee come out. I hope that's not the case, but I'm really passionate about this. I might have to put you in the penalty box if you get too excited. (laughs) Well, you can just take over and just just keep this going. In, In preparation for this, Kevin and I will sometimes, a lot of times we just riff, we just talk, and we just kind of go off the cuff. This is one of those subjects I didn't really want to go off the cuff. So we put an outline together and usually our outlines are like a page to a page and a half. This is seven pages of notes. So we're not going to, we're going to try really hard to not let this go too long and end up being our longest episode yet. But it's, it's, it's so important to me. I wanted to be sure that we did this topic justice because I really don't want to leave anything out, but we're not going to be able to go super deep because there is so much to unpack in this topic. Yeah, regarding women having body issues and uh, just a lot of problems and issues as women grow older. And if they were teenage girls sitting in the churches of very conservative or sitting in the pews of very conservative churches and hearing these messages week in and week out and going to Bible classes and oftentimes the blame was put on women, make sure that Make sure that you're dressing modestly. If a man lusts, it's your fault. If a teenage boy lusts, it's your fault. And there was a lot of victim blaming. And is this, uh, regrettably, I taught a lot of the same things for many I years. I did too and, and for then, a short period, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess there's a bit of consolation in my own mind where I did try to be very consistent about this. I had an old sermon 
that I looked back and just going through some of the notes and it's called, do you take off Christ when you put on your clothes? <laughs> Dude, and, you've got the best titles. <laughs> I swear you've got the best titles, man. Well, what, one of the, the points that I made is, is even back then I pointed out the inconsistency that if we are going to teach a modesty standard of how someone should dress and the amount of, of, of your body that should be clothed, then it's not just for women, but it's also for men. And there's a lot of hypocrisy regarding yeah. people who, who do hold to even modest, some of the modesty standards we're going to talk about and explain why we've changed our mind on. But there were, there were, it, there was a lot of inconsistencies where if you went to a beach, then the guy could take his shirt off, but the, the girl had to be fully clothed. And I tried to teach against those inconsistencies. My, instead of saying that, you know, well, it was okay for the man to have his shirt off, I'd say, no, it's wrong for both. Both need to be fully clothed at the beach, uh, regardless of what you're doing. You know, you need to make sure that you're fully clothed according to the quote-unquote biblical standards. But there, there, there was and there is a lot of inconsistency among most churches and most people regarding the topic of modesty, where it usually falls more on the ladies than it does the men. And I've even heard some very gross and disgusting comments that, once again, I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm not giving myself an out of my past preaching and teaching because I have, I, I regret all of it, or not all of it, but most of it. And, and this is certainly a topic that I do regret teaching on. Uh, in the way that I did, but I I even talked about how disgusting it was to hear men say, you know, women need to to dress up and cover up because you know I'm at the Lord's supper table and as I'm passing the trays, I always see the teenagers wearing these low cut tops and 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 low skirts. And in my mind, I'm thinking, first of all, you're a pervert uh, if, you're, <laughs> if, if, if you're looking at teenage girls, you know, you're a 70 year old man and you're talking about looking at a 14 or 15 year old girl, you know, we, we need to, we, we, we need to call in some counseling here first and foremost. But second of all, um, it, it's a lack of responsibility. And instead of taking the responsibility and saying, this is, this is up to me, first of all, what I look at and how I understand and comprehend and what I think about and, and, and those types of things, it was always passing the buck. It was always passing yeah. the blame on the women. Now, and, and I, that's something, even whenever I was staunchly legalistic and it's funny because in my Pentecostal days, you know, the Pentecostal church is really well known for holiness standards and the one cup churches of Christ follows many of the same modesty standards that the Pentecostal church does. A lot of one cup sisters wear most of the garb that you see most Pentecostal women wear. the biggest difference being makeup isn't frowned upon in the one cup church. Um, but most women in the one cup church would wear exclusively dresses or skirts. Um, they don't cut their hair. And many times if they're out and about in public, they'll get confused for someone who's Pentecostal. Someone asks them where they go to church. They yeah. expect to hear Pentecostal, you know, some Pentecostal church say church of Christ. So, oh, wow. Well, that's, that's kind of surprising. Um, 
But even whenever I was in my Pentecostal days, my family, we really didn't care all that much about modesty standards, at least in the terms that that many Pentecostals purport them. I mean, my mother cut her hair. She wore makeup. She wore jewelry. I mean, she she wore pants. She wore dresses to church. I had some family members. I had aunts and uncles and cousins that did not. They observed those holiness standards and modesty standards. But like you, even whenever I was at my most legalistic I taught on modesty maybe twice because I was still early in my time within the church and I was still building my abilities to speak. I was still building my, um, what's the word, reputation within the church. And I was emulating, as many do, the preachers that they really looked up to. And I I preached on it once, maybe twice. And that was it for me because it just, I I just didn't feel right. It wasn't something I really fully bought into, but I would support somebody who did, but like you, the double standard, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, always drove me crazy. You know, talking about these girls who need to dress up, they, you know, they need to dress right. They need to cover up. They don't need to cause their brother to stumble, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll get into that later. But it drove me crazy that that was always the ax that was ground but with boys, you would hear maybe a 30 second blurb, like you were saying, how you don't need to take off your shirt at the beach. And maybe you don't even need to go to the beach. I mean, why would you put yourself in that situation to begin with? That was the extent of the admonition given to the male members of the church. But the majority, 98 percent of the lessons directed at the sisters. And it's it's ridiculous. But. In any case, the justification that I would use and the passages that I would use, and you and I talked a little bit about this before we we hit record, you would use many of the same verses and many of the same justifications I did. But I would always start with 1 Timothy 2.9. And at the very end of this podcast, we're going to go through 1 Timothy 2, and we're going to talk about what this means within its context then and within our modern context now, at least the way that I have read it and after a lot of study, what I believe that this passage says. In 1 Timothy 2.9, this is the famous passage that states that women need to adorn themselves with modest apparel, that they need to adorn themselves not with braided gold or, or braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but they need to do that which is proper for women professing godliness. So you see there, women, you need to wear modest apparel. You need to focus on modesty. And then, of course, that old chestnut that you and I both talked about in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, if you've you know, you've heard that it was said that you don't need to commit adultery, but if you look at a woman to lust for her in your heart, well, you've committed adultery in your heart. So you see women, you need to make sure you're dressing appropriately so that men don't lust after you. And that would be the jumping off point for me. And then we would dive in a little bit deeper, which we'll briefly discuss just to justify those positions. Well, and this is, I, and I'll just want to insert this point with Matthew five twenty seven and 28, because ironically, Within context, this passage is putting the responsibility on the man, yeah, and telling the man that number one, it's up to you. It's it's not the woman's fault if you lust, but also you don't need to because in doing so, you're objectifying that woman. You're objectifying yeah. that individual, and that's really the idea of lust and coveting is 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 looking at something, objectifying it, and and wanting it. And yep. uh, turning something of great value, such as a human, into nothing more than a tool or something that is is pleasurable to the eyes, or just something that that makes you happy more so than a than a than a human being, a person that's made in the image of God. 
Yeah, and you're exactly right. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. I've got a, an amusing anecdote that I'll share with you. The second time that I preached on this was about four or five years afterwards. And I made it a point to split the time as close to equally as possible as I could in terms of admonition for Christian sisters and Christian brothers as well. And uh, it, it got really awkward afterwards with some of the conversations because people weren't accustomed to hearing someone talk in the terms that I that I spoke with. But anyway, the Jump, best jumping off place is this idea and this question, well, what is modesty in and of itself? And the way that I would explain it is the Bible wants women to wear modest apparel. Well, and men too, but what is modesty? And the way that I defined it back in the day is the modesty in biblical terms that that concept means to cover one's nakedness. Well, then the question is, is what is nakedness? So we have to define that term in order to define what modesty is. We need to know what nakedness is. And my old interpretation was that you were naked. If anything was exposed between your shoulders and your knees mm-hmm. and I justified that interpretation by looking at several different passages. The first thing I would do is I would look at Revelation 3 and 18, where um, Jesus speaks to, and now I can't remember which church it is, but how he speaks to one of those churches there in Asia Minor, and he tells them that they need to uh, be rich. They need to clothe themselves in white garments and so that the shame of their nakedness won't be revealed. So nakedness is shameful, you see. Nakedness is shameful. And we know that by going all the way back to the very beginning when we see Adam and Eve in the garden. They're naked and unashamed. They are together in the garden and they are t- they're with one another, their husband and wife. There's no other people that they need to hide themselves from. They're naked and unashamed. And then they are tempted by the serpent. They're deceived. They eat of the fruit. Their eyes are open. Their nakedness is revealed to them. They become self-aware of it and they try to cover themselves up. And whenever they cover themselves up, they sewed fig leaves together in order to cover their nakedness, but that wasn't good enough for God. So then he made them tunics of skin. And Kevin, I'll let you explain why those tunics of skin illustrate, or at least we unnecessarily and wrongly inferred from that, that that indicates <laughs> skin between the shoulders and the thighs are considered nakedness. Uh, yeah. I mean, you talk about hermeneutical gymnastics. I mean, I look at the way that I approach scripture now versus how I approach scripture then. And it's just, it, it, it talk about a dichotomy. I mean, it is, yeah. it is it, the, the talking about cherry picking verses to come up with what's supposed to be a, co- a coherent theology on modesty is, is just ridiculous. But yeah, I used, I'd go back to the garden in Genesis three. And after Adam and Eve sinned, we noticed that God clothed them with animal skins. And if you look at the word in the Hebrew, the tunic, it actually says he clothed them with tunics of skin is uh, how most translations translate that in the English. And if you look in the Hebrew and you do a little study on that word tunic, it carries the idea of a garment that reaches from the shoulder to around the knees. Yeah. And so that right there was what I called the creational standard of modesty. If we yeah. want to if we want to know what modesty looks like, you go all the way back to creation and you see how God himself clothed Adam and Eve. And I had a lot of one-liners I would use. I say, you know, we always talk about, we don't know how we should clothe ourselves. Well, what if you could ask God, God, what parts of my body should be clothed? Wouldn't that be a pretty good place to start? And they're like, yeah, amen, amen. Well, let's go all the way back to Genesis 3. And here, 
God gives us the answer. God says that you need to be clothed from the shoulder to your knee because everyone knows Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, is about modesty, right? I mean, that's the whole point of Genesis 3, 21. <laughs> of course, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> you know, you ask any uh, Hebrew scholar or any Old Testament scholar, uh, any any you know Jewish scholar, and they're going to tell you, oh yeah, the focus of Genesis three twenty one is on modesty, and always had been. <laughs> no, like like no one, no one went to Genesis three twenty one to argue a standard of modesty. I mean, this it, it is it is mind blowing to think how we had have used the Bible and twisted it to serve our purposes. It's kind of the word lasciviousness yeah. and how we say that that condemns all dancing. That, that, that'll have to be another topic for another time. But the point is, is if you look at Genesis chapter 321, to make the argument for shoulder to the knee, it was looking at the Hebrew word that's translated tunics or tunics of skin and seeing that this was a covering that covered from the shoulder to the knee. And furthermore, and you hit on this briefly, I would continue to expound on this point by saying that there would have been no reason for God to have clothed Adam and Eve from shoulder to the knee since they were married unless he was trying to give an example for a universal example that the world would need to follow, that everybody would need to follow. And therefore, that's, that's, that's you know, how I got that out of Genesis 3.21. Well, and I extrapolated that same information, and I think that goes to show just how legalism thrives in an echo chamber. Yeah. Legalism can't thrive without an echo chamber continually reaffirming the perspective that you hold to and what you're trying to promote. Because it's funny, in, in putting this outline together, I sent it to you and you know, we chatted briefly earlier today, and you were saying, Oh yeah, man, I used all the same points that you did, and you have a couple other verses that you used that I didn't, but we pretty much said the same things and made the same arguments from the same verses. And to me, well, that, that's because we were both going to the Bible, Lee. That's what happens when two people go to the Bible <laughs> and study it. They're going to come away with the exact same answers. <laughs> of course. Of course. And we see that at play here. But it's but it's it's really wild, though, because you didn't. I, I, th I think if, you, if you're really straight up about it, you didn't arrive at those conclusions on your own. No, Those were things that you had not. heard. They were things that I had heard. And, you know, it, in that moment, it sounds good. It makes sense. And within that framework, it does make sense. But whenever you take a few steps back and you look at it from a more clear perspective, from a more rational perspective, no, and we'll get more into Adam and Eve. Each of these points that we're getting to that we use to justify this, we're going to undo those and talk about those as we go through this episode. But in any case, I would go to the Gen I would go to the Genesis account in the garden. And, and that's creation. I mean, that that is is what I thought was the de facto point, because this is a, the, a creational standard. That's what I always emphasize. This is yeah. this is what God did at creation. And he did it without any other humans, which meant that this is the standard to go by. But what's so interesting to me is that even at this point, and this isn't in the notes, but even at this point, there's no one else on earth to look upon their nakedness. Yeah. So if one is going to take this point, you also have a period of time in which nakedness was pre the, 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 what was the word I'm looking for? The people involved that are looking upon their nakedness hasn't changed. It's still Adam and Eve. It's still husband and wife. And it wasn't shameful before the, they ate of the fruit of the tree, 
but it was afterwards and then God clothed them. So it could even be said and the case could be made that it would be wrong for a husband and wife to look upon one another's nakedness. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. There there are people that have made that point. I've heard people make that point. Well, I knew, I knew of someone now this, I will say this is not a popular theory and most people do not believe this or a popular belief, but I, I personally knew someone who made the argument that based upon what you just said, Genesis 3, that even within a husband and wife relationship, you shouldn't just walk around naked around each. Like, like if you're if you are just walking around the house or getting ready in the morning, you shouldn't be naked. That the only time in which you you can, as they described it, you know, because they lived like sounded like they, they were King James, right? They disrobed. But they said the only times you could disrobe uh, was, it's like, oh, okay, a theith. But uh, the only times you could, <laughs> you could, you could disrobe is what they said. And, and once again, I mean, this just shows you the disconnect is when you were having sex with your spouse. They said, other than that, you, you, you don't need to be walking around naked. That's a sh- nakedness is a th- shameful thing, and it should always be viewed as a shameful thing. Even, it's intrinsically shameful. Yes, and that you yeah. can have sex with your spouse, but other than that, you know, nakedness is not something you should just be participating in. It shouldn't be even around your own spouse. Well, what's wild is, is that I heard that same argument made, but it was taken a step further by this individual who I was speaking to. And even when you would engage in sexual relations with your spouse, you needed to do it in the dark with the lights off so you wouldn't look upon their nakedness. Wow. Well, you don't want to look upon the woman, you know, your wife to lust. So, well, exactly. Jesus Jesus didn't say you can't look at, you know, he just said, don't look at a woman, period. So I can't look at my wife. The sarcasm's thick on this one, but I mean, I would, <laughs> but I would go to the garden. I would start there. And then another one that I like to look at was Isaiah 20 and verse four, where it speaks of the king of Assyria. Isaiah's prophesying about Egypt um, falling to the Assyrians and the Ethiopians would fall to Assyria as well. And that the king of Assyria would lead them out of captivity or lead them into captivity. They're young and old, naked and barefoot with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And I would use that point to say, well, what that means is, is you really need to be extra careful if, you you know, whenever you're out and about, if you bend over to tie your shoes, you need to make sure that that (laughs) natal cleft isn't showing. Make sure you don't have any plumber's crack going. And, oh, and, and, and you, by the dude, way, you, you just you just condemn like eighty percent of of the elderly at most churches at potlucks, man. <laughs> yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, bless their hearts. But also, but but hey, and for our audience, yes, that is the the literal technical term for your butt crack, the natal cleft. So hey, you learned something today. How about that? Don't let your natal cleft show. Because it just didn't seem right to say butt crack in the uh, pulpit. So, yeah, we call that the natal cleft. Make sure you don't have any plumber's issues going on. Everyone knows what you're talking about. So I would use that passage. I would say anything, but I would even take it a step further. Anything that conformed to the buttocks would expose one's nakedness. Because if it clings to it, I mean, it's it's exactly the same as if as if your butt's on view for everyone to behold. So if it's something that's form-fitting, it's not something you should wear either. And to go beyond that, because a lot of people would wear shorts. If you sit down, your shorts would come up above your knee. To drive the point home, I would argue that if your nakedness is on display, it doesn't just have to do with your chest. It doesn't just have to do with your midriff. It doesn't just have to do with your buttocks or your natal cleft. 
it also includes your thighs. And to support that idea that nakedness included thighs, I would rehash the tunics from the garden. And then I would talk about the priestly garments in Exodus 28 and verse 42, where God instructed the Levitical priests that they needed to wear trousers, linen undergarments to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. So God's saying that the purpose of these garments is to cover the nakedness of the priests, and it's going to go from the waist to the thigh. That means that the thigh is nakedness. And to me, I was just presented that it's an open and shut case. You can't let, if you're wearing shorts, you can wear shorts as long as your thigh doesn't show at all when you wear them. And when you sit down, as long as your thigh doesn't show, you're okay there too. But if you're wearing shorts that are short enough that they ride up, that your thigh shows, if you're wearing Indian shorts, they ride up on you, then you can't, that's unacceptable. You need to throw those garments out. And then to further drive that point home, we take a look at Isaiah 47 and verses one through three, where the Bible talks about uh, Babylon as a virgin. I'm just going to go ahead and read this if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So here Isaiah says, come down, and I'm reading the New King James on this because that's the version that I would preach this from. I'm a huge fan of the New Revised Standard Version now. I really like that. It's a scholarly text. It's easy to read. It's easier to understand. It's it's a much more accurate translation than the King James or New King James. So that's my personal preference. Maybe someone else has another one, whatever. Anyway, Isaiah 47 and verse 1, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil. Take off the skirt. Oh, listen to this. Uncover the thigh. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. See there, your nakedness will be uncovered. When you take off that skirt, whenever you uncover the thigh, what he's talking about is wading through the waters, lifting up that skirt above the knee and exposing the thigh. You're exposing your nakedness. And that is shameful. And that's exactly how I would say it in the pulpit. I argued that the Bible's clear. The scripture teaches that you can't make your nakedness visible and the link between the thigh and nakedness, it's crystal clear. That's a point that I made and it's something that I no longer buy into. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. But you had some other passages that you used to drive those same points home. Yeah, just a couple of extra in addition. It was John 21, 7, and this is when Peter is out fishing and... (sighs) Once again, I mean, I almost feel embarrassed saying these are the types of verses. I, I'm like discrediting, I think, my my authority here uh, by saying this is how I used to argue. But in John 21, 7, it says, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And uh, as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. So here, here's the resurrected Jesus. And and instead of me focusing on the fact that Jesus was resurrected and there was excitement, what did I use John 21.7 to do? Talk about modesty, because once again, <laughs> that's what John 21.7 is talking about is modesty. No, wrong. But that's that. this was another one of those proof texts where I would say, well, see, John or Peter, excuse me, not John, Peter recognized the importance of being modest so much so that even when he was excited to see Jesus, 
while he was out fishing and there was nobody to see him, he took out took off his outer tunic. But when he knew he was going to go back on land and mix where there would be mixed company, he made sure to put his tunic back on. And so this is a just another important passage that clearly the Holy Spirit guided the author of the Gospel of John to write so that we can know how important it is to put our outer tunics on or, or, or make sure that we're putting uh, clothing on our bodies when we're around other people. But also, 1 Corinthians uh, was another passage I would go to when I would talk about the just modesty in general of how Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians 12, 23, not specifically about physical bodies, but he's making a metaphor and paralleling a physical body to the spiritual body of Christ and saying that there are unpresentable parts. And the point he's making is within the body of Christ, there may be parts that are unpresentable that people don't think much about or that people can't really see, but they still have an important part in the body of Christ. So everyone has a place in the body of Christ. Well, how did I use this? Well, I said, hey, Paul's point is that there are unpresentable parts and those unpresentable parts need to be covered. What are the... (laughs) What are those unpresentable parts? Genesis chapter three. It, it, it's it's the shoulder it's to the knee. Isaiah chapter. Yeah, I mean, and just you know, going Exodus twenty eight forty two, going to all these passages and cherry picking and making this theology look like it was that, that coherent. There, it was coherent. It was consistent. There was there 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 was a continuity to it. I, I, that's what I was trying to do, and that's and by the way. I was not doing this on purpose. I thought that this is how I was supposed to approach the Bible. I thought well, that this is the same, same this, thing. You, know, you, you go and you, you find verses that even abstractly may have to do with what you're saying. And so you put them all together and it, you come away with this, this doctrine that has been piecemealed together. It's a um, Voltron of poor hermeneutics is what it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I would even take it a step further. Well, I wouldn't take it a step further, but there are a lot of people within Pentecostal and one cup circles who would take these, these ideas a step further and argue that modesty also pertain to the type of clothes that people would wear. And, you know, of course that would mean, and you and I would have agreed, you know, no swimsuits in public, no beach wear, no, what are the old timers called it? Mixed bathing. No shorts or yoga mixed pants or bathing. tights. Mixed bathing. We're hey, disrobing. We're going to disrobe and mix bathe. <laughs> mixed bathing. <laughs> always always got a kick out of that that turn of phrase. But there were some who by would the say way, that, By the way, we love our older audience, and there yes, are so, so many of you who are not like that. So that that is a yes. that is a stereotype we probably need to abandon. But that is what we heard a lot of growing up from older members making these claims, saying these types of things. But yeah, mixed mix bathing never made sense to me because I'm like, I've never gone mixed bathing with, with anyone in my youth group before. I don't know why people keep talking about mixed bathing. I left my soap at home. I'm not going to be able to bathe right now. But but we would take it a step further. A lot of people would take it a step further. And I never bought into this particular doctrine. But there are, within the Pentecostal church and also within the One Cup church, this argument would be made that women shouldn't wear pants either because the Greek word in first Timothy two and nine and 10 for modest apparel is partially defined as a garment that hangs down. And the argument is, is pants don't hang down off the body. So therefore they're unacceptable garb for women to wear. 
and dressing in a manner that's unbiblical is going to draw undue attention to yourself and people have a right to judge you based on how you look. And whenever I heard a preacher mention that once, that people have a right to judge you based on how you look, I was still legalistic. I I was still very much entrenched within that world. And it made me angry when he said that. Because I'm thinking to myself, are you serious? You're saying people have a right to judge you based on how you look, based on how you dress. Didn't James like spend how many verses in chapter two arguing against that very point? If you have someone that comes into your assembly with with fine clothes and fine apparel and gold and silver and you tell them to sit here and someone comes in and pour rags, and you tell them to sit there. Aren't you, you know, judging with an evil heart? Yeah. So you're going to tell me that 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 judging someone with an evil heart, what the Bible says, that that's justifiable based on how you dress. That just it, it made me angry. But, but anyway, oh, well, and, and to to just go along with what you're saying too, I heard a preacher say this when I was a teenager, and he was at a it was at a youth rally, and he was once again specifically talking to to young ladies. I mean, it was he was talking to the whole audience, but he was talking about modesty, and he addressed the the ladies in the audience, and he said, "If you dress like a whore, he said, don't be surprised when a man or your boyfriend treats you like one." Wow. And I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, at that, well, now I'm sitting here thinking, looking back, what you just said, wow, I can't believe that that happened. But back then we were like, yeah, that's right. You know, women, it's their fault. They're dressed like a whore. They're <laughs> going to be treated like a whore. And, and, and not only, so not only were you putting all of the, the blame on the woman, but you were also shaming the woman. And in an in about way, you were giving permission for the guys in there to treat girls that way and, and to yeah. treat tr- to, to treat girls in a in a disrespectful way. And I mean, it's just quite frankly, it is mind blowing to think of the tight. And, and this was not a young guy saying this. This was yeah. someone who who looking back should have known better um, to say something like that. And yet I, I'm, I'm pretty sure based upon, uh, you know, who this is, this is someone who still believes in that and still would teach and say things like that. And it's just, it's really sad. Well, it it really is. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about what we used to believe and what we used to teach and what so many people in our audience have heard probably their whole lives as well. And it's important to rehash that because whenever you really think about it and you really talk about it candidly, like we have, it really exposes just how toxic and how awful, and I'm even going to say how wicked this entire doctrine is, dude. It's it's evil. It's wrong. And just like you said, it gives young boys and young men and even older men an out to be disrespectful towards their sisters in Christ, to be disrespectful towards women in general. It 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 completely takes responsibility off of the male to conduct themselves in a reasonable in Christ-like manner. It puts all of the onus on the woman and our girls and our women, our sisters, they are, this is a heavy burden for them to bear because they're not just responsible now for themselves and their own hearts and their own minds. Now they're responsible for mine and for yours and for all of their brothers as well. And that's, that's anti-biblical and we'll get into that in a bit, but is there anything else that that you want to talk about or hash out before we get into why we change on this and and what the Bible actually teaches about this topic? 
No, let's, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Let's do it. Well, it, the irony is, is that I began to undo this while I was still very much legalistic. I had a several different discussions. There were some things that happened that I won't get into on the podcast, but there were some things that transpired and some other situations that arose that led to some conversations that got heated. And so I studied this out in detail and it's funny looking back on some of the other notes that I used to compose the notes for this episode. You know, this was done years ago and it sounds like I could have wrote most of this yesterday. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really cool to see how even then when I wasn't aware that that paradigm was shifting to see that, and, and yeah, this is going to sound charismatic as I'll get out, but I really do believe that God was working on my heart then to lead me to where I am now. But the biggest reason why I don't ascribe to this anymore is because in, in studying this idea, everything, and I mean everything related to the modesty topic is based on cultural context. We take their cultural context and completely ignore it. We misappropriate it, and then we bring it into our context and try to make application of it interpreting what the verses that we talked about before that we use to justify that toxic doctrine, what they really mean. One of the things we say on this podcast is, yeah, the Bible says what it says, but the Bible means what it means. And it doesn't always mean what the literal, plain, straightforward reading of it says. It's based on their cultural context. And whenever we take that out of that context and we try to wrest it from it and apply it in our modern era, we, we do the subject of this service. We have to reorient these concepts to our cultural context to make sense of it. But before we can do that, we have to understand what their context was. So if we go back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what's really interesting is just like you said, God's purpose in, in Genesis 3 in uh, what was that? Verse 21 was yeah. to say, yep, you need to make sure you're covering yourself from your thighs to your shoulders, make sure that all that's covered. You see, that's the reason why that verse is in there. That's why the Holy Spirit put it in there. What's interesting is um, a a uh, scholar, couldn't think of the word, by the name of Wilder, he published an article in the Westminster Theological Journal um, titled Illumination and Investiture, the Royal Significance of the Tree of Wisdom in Genesis 3. And what he said is this, in regards to Adam and Eve, the intent of the author seems to be communicating a meaning that is much deeper than inferring that anything between the shoulders and thighs is nakedness. And what's really interesting is, and I'm just going to summarize because it's, it's, I had a pretty lengthy quote in the other one, but the way that Paul and Jesus refer to Adam, whenever we look at the New Testament, it's not concrete in every instance. They teach lessons from the creation account that are spiritual and that transcend a literal, straightforward reading of it. There are some ancient interpretations that viewed the application of the coats of skin specifically as a spiritual example of the first sacrifice being made to cover the sin of man. And I think that's really, really interesting because the first sin of man revealed their nakedness to them. And it's almost as if it, from their perspective in, the, in their paradigm that God is sacrificing this animal to cover that sin, to literally cover them. That's an ancient perspective, an ancient Jewish perspective on the purpose of the coats of skin. Another prevalent idea that um, existed in interpreting this passage in antiquity is that the skins represent man's mortality. 
man was immortal in the garden, but he's made mortal because of the consequences of his sin. And the coats of skin symbolize the mortal body by taking the dead skins from animals and clothing them in mortality. So even this passage in which God kills animals and clothes Adam and Eve with skins was read metaphorically. It was read as a, it was read parabolically. And it's very interesting to me. The idea is that our immortal soul, they would believe, was clothed in a robe of dead skin. And, and yet another interpretation is that clothing should not be seen as necessary only to cover shame and nakedness, but rather God's plan was always to clothe Adam and Eve as a sign of honor for the higher condition and glory that they would have attained had they not sinned. And there are some other perspectives, but I think those suffice to, to really demonstrate the point that the purpose of Genesis 3.21 isn't to show that God wants us to cover our nakedness and our nakedness is any flesh that's exposed between our shoulder and our knee. That's not well, the point. There are no. other points and other readings that go way deeper than that and that are much older than that. Yeah, and, and just playing off of what you said with the idea of the first sacrifice and how this would have been more symbolic to show that they had sinned, and so this is a story about there being a sacrifice on their behalf, and you know, really that seems to be the whole tenor of this passage first and foremost, and that doesn't even get into reading Genesis the book of Genesis, especially the first several chapters, is more of a parabolic story uh, than literal history anyway. You know, we, we could really go deep into that, and we have in other episodes. But something else, even taking more of a legalistic approach to this passage, is looking at the actual Hebrew word, because earlier I noted that the Hebrew word means from the shoulder to the knee. That's correct in some instances. But Lee, I don't know if, if how much study you've done on this because this is this was new to me when someone brought this out even when I was still legalistic that the word actually is used to describe a clo clothing that can be from the shoulder all the way to the ankles and oh also, wow and, and also that had long sleeves and if you if you do a hebrew study on this word, you will see that there is not just one standard definition for this word. It can be shoulder to the knee. It can be shoulder to the ankle. It can be a tunic that is sleeveless. It can be a tunic that have, has sleeves. So once you get into any kind of arguments, and this is what I tell anyone about Greek and Hebrew arguments. And before I make this statement, let me say this. I am not a Greek or Hebrew scholar. I'm not a linguistic scholar. Um, I, I did take Greek and Hebrew when I went to school, and we took several courses on it. But aside from just being able to know how to look up words and study the words and parse them out, you know, I, I am not a scholar and I don't claim to be a scholar. So what I'm about to say is not coming from me. It's coming from actually my teacher <laughs> who taught Greek and Hebrew. And he said that if you have to make an argument, solely based on the Greek or Hebrew, and that is really all you have to go by, or that is your main basis, he said it's probably a bad argument. Because yeah. he said that that is where you lose a lot of people, is when you start making arguments from the Greek and Hebrew. Not that that cannot teach you something, because we know that the Bible was not written in English, so it was translated, and there's some things that we can learn by going to the Greek and Hebrew. But when we predominantly 
try to isolate a verse and just look at that one word and try to make an argument without really broadening our studies, then we usually will come to faulty conclusions. And that's that's the case with this word. This word, it, it, it would be one thing if it meant nothing but a garment from the shoulder to the knee. And even then, as you just explained, that wouldn't be an appropriate way to apply that text as far as modesty standards are concerned anyway, because that's not yeah. the intention of the passage. But even if you were trying to, to be legalistic with that passage, which view are you going to take? Are you going to take shoulder to the knee? Are you going to take sleeveless? Are you going to take long sleeves? Are you going to take shoulder to the ankle? What view are you going to take to be consistent? Then you would, you would have to say that to be on the safe side, especially in my legalistic thinking, well, you better go from the shoulder to the ankle. And that, that may even be what some people, if they were legalistic, would be thinking, oh, well, I didn't realize that. I better not, you know, ever show my, you know, my calf muscles then. It, it needs to be, everything needs to be completely covered. But it's just a matter of getting in into, into those arguments and poking around a little bit. When you hear your preacher, your minister, someone you even care about, it's not that they're being insincere, it's that they're probably regurgitating, just like you and I did for many years, we're regurgitating things that we've heard that sound good. And let's be honest, the average person in the pew is not going to come up to me and challenge me on Greek and Hebrew. Uh, and so when I made this argument saying, well, the tunic in the Hebrew was from the shoulder to the knee, how many people are going to come up and challenge me on that? Most people don't even know how to look up Hebrew words, much less how to properly know what the definition is. Yeah. And so here I was as a 24, 25 year old know it all and confidently saying this is what the Hebrew says. And then it wasn't until I did finally get challenged by someone who was sitting in the audience, someone who did know Hebrew a lot better than I did. He's like, you know, that word is not exclusively from the shoulder to the knee, right? And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. And, you know, after five minutes of him showing me, I'm like, wow, okay, what do, what do we do with this? But anyway, the point I want to make is simply the argument doesn't even stand as originally given. If you're going to make the argument, you would have to say, we don't know how much of the body this covered. And if we are using this as some sort of legalistic, universal, absolute standard, then you better be covering from the shoulder all the way to the ankle if you're going to use Genesis chapter 3. You know what's interesting is that there are several Pentecostal circles that are very, very strict, and there are even some no-exception one-cup congregations that are strict and they believe that you shouldn't show your calves. They believe that you should be covered to the ankles, that men should never wear any shorts at all, that they should always wear pants and that women should only wear dresses and yeah. that they should only wear long sleeves. I had a great grandpa who taught that he taught that men, of course he was Pentecostal, but he taught that only that men should only wear long sleeves and only wear long pants. And that is, it's, uh, it's it's so wild to me that I never really knew where that perspective came from, and you just helped me learn a little something new about all of that. Yeah, in fa in fact, I just 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 for the fun of it, real quick, uh, yep. I went I went on ScriptureText.com or BibleHub.com, and and you can look up Greek and Hebrew. Now, this isn't going to give you an in depth study, but it is going to give you a general idea. And even there, uh, it says a tunic with long skirts and sleeves. <laughs> you know, so, so, so I mean, and you know, and that's not the once again the only definition it gives, but it gives that definition, and then it gives you know about seven or eight passages to show 
how that that word can be used to talk about a long tunic uh, that w- that that has a you know flowing skirt and sleeves on it, and yeah. so it just once again this this doesn't take a whole lot of effort to look into, but when you are programmed, you know con- doctrinally conditioned to see something, then you're going to, you're going to find it. You're going to figure out ways to make it seem like it validates what you already believe. Well, and that's how most people read the Bible. I mean, if, if we're going to be frank about it, that's how most people read it. And whenever it's only whenever you come across something that you can't make fit, that that cognitive dissonance starts to set in, or you talk to someone else who has another reading or another perspective of it. And that's why these echo chambers are so hard to break out of for a lot of people because they're entrenched within them and they're encouraged to not break out of them lest they be led away by dangerous books or dangerous people or dangerous ideas. But the point being, whether the tunic is long sleeved and in a long dress like tunic or whether it goes from the shoulders to the knees, the point remains the same from that perspective. The thighs should be covered because the thighs comprise nakedness. So that's the first domino to fall is whenever we realize that the purpose of God clothing Adam and Eve in tunics, it may not be to cover up their nakedness, but even if it is the question still remains is the thigh nakedness and whenever we get into the levitical garments that is where that argument begins to fall apart whenever you begin to parse that out so if we go back to the levitical undergarments we remember that passage we have the levitical priests are having to climb these stairs to to offer this sacrifice and they don't want anybody peeking up their priestly garments and seeing they're good and plenty so they got to wear these these uh Uh, linen breeches as the King James calls it, or these linen undergarments. And so that their nakedness won't be exposed. Right? So the purpose is to cover nakedness. So then the question is, does nakedness, does that statement of the thigh tie into that? And whenever I studied this, I was really surprised to see that it doesn't. Whenever you look at nakedness and the thigh being used in relation to nakedness, one of the things I discovered is that in every instance when nakedness is discussed and the thigh is mentioned, it's mentioned euphemistically. Nakedness in every passage in which nakedness is discussed, it literally means the pudendum. Now, the pudendum, that's another anatomical term. Hey, you got the natal cleft earlier. Now you're getting the pudendum now. The pudendum is the groin area, the genital area, the the, um, area of reproduction and waste expulsion. That's what nakedness means. Every Hebrew scholar states that that's the case. Every Hebrew dictionary I found states that that's the case. The purpose of the garments was to cover the nakedness, but when thigh is said, that is used euphemistically to describe the pudendal area. And one of the examples I like to use for this is if my boys, which they're still young and they're becoming more self-aware now, so they don't run around the house naked anymore. And by naked, I mean stark butt naked. But whenever they would, if I would tell them whenever their sisters were up and about, hey, you need to cover up your wiener. I'm not talking about a hot dog. I'm not talking about a Frank that they got out of the fridge. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. I'm talking, I'm using that word as a euphemistic sense or in a euphemistic sense to describe their anatomy. That's the same thing that we see in the Old Testament scriptures. Whenever the thigh is referenced in connection with nakedness, it always, always, always refers to the pudendum. 
And one of the things that I would do, or really I didn't do it, but that I would hear other preachers do whenever they would refer to this is they would look at Thayer's definition or Strong's definition, because that settles the whole matter. And they would only (laughs) state the first part of the definition from an unused root, meaning to be soft, the thigh from its fleshy softness. Now, whenever you read the passage or the the story about when Jacob wrestled with God and he got struck in the hip, he got struck in the thigh, some translations render it. It's talking about your thigh, where your quadriceps muscles are, your hamstrings. It's talking about the literal thigh. But they would say, see right there, it's talking about the thigh. That's nakedness, and we can't have that. But the definition goes on. The second definition is, by euphemism, the generative parts, the reproductive area, the pudendum. And there are some, well, most Hebrew scholars interpret this to mean that the undergarments that the um, Levitical priests wore fit more like your your beefy Hanes. They fit more like your tidy whities than they did boxers that fell all the way to the knees. And there are others that still interpret it. There are a lot of people that interpret it the way that I used to interpret it, but it doesn't cut the mustard. It doesn't stand up to scrutiny. The evidence is much stronger linguistically on the other side the thigh doesn't mean it, it it doesn't mean your thigh is literal nakedness that is a reference to the pudendum uncovering the thigh means to expose the genitals if we go back to isaiah if we go back to isaiah 47 whenever she's raising up her skirt and uncovering the thigh that's another euphemistic statement that means to expose your genital area it doesn't mean they're literally uncovering their thigh of course if you're lifting up your skirt your thigh is going to be uncovered but that's not what the hebrews referencing another thing that's interesting is and this is just kind of a side note and this is largely understood in scholastic circles and scholarly circles is that the phrase uncover the feet and we remember that in Ruth chapter three and and uh, I think it's verse four where Naomi's given Ruth instructions on how she can seduce Boaz she says well go in and uncover the feet that is known to be a euphemism that means have sex have sexual relations uncovering the thigh means to expose the genitals and sometimes it can mean to engage in intercourse. And that comes from, uh, I think his name's Martin Satlow and his article, Jewish Constructions of Nakedness in Late Antiquity in the Journal of Biblical Literature and uh, M. Delcor in two special meanings of the word yid in, he- in biblical Hebrew. So in, in all of this, what we see is that this idea that the thigh is nakedness, whenever you go back to the roots of scripture and you go back to the origin of this, the thigh itself is not nakedness. The Bible yeah. doesn't define it as nakedness. It's a euphemism used to describe the genitals. And that surprised me. It's another thing that's really interesting to me about this is that men were forbidden from ministering, praying, or engaging in any kind of spiritual activity. Jewish men were forbidden from doing anything spiritual at all, even praying in private in any state of undress, period. They had to be fully dressed in order to pray unto God. The law stated that if the penis was exposed during any spiritual activity, that it was an abomination of God. To be safe, the men who engaged in any type of spiritual activity ensured they were fully and completely clothed before they did anything. There's a Jewish story that, uh, I don't know if you say his name Gamaliel or Gamaliel. I've heard his name pronounced a bunch of different ways, but the, the dude that Paul tutored under, it said that he was in a bathhouse when he was approached by one of his students with a question about the Torah and Gamaliel answered his student. We don't discuss the Torah in the bathhouse. (laughs) 
that illustrates, and there's other history we could get into, but we're running way longer than what I'm wanting to anyway, but it wasn't uncommon or shameful for men to be exposed or even naked in public places in certain contexts, the bathhouse and exercise or athletic competition with one another though in those social contexts, nakedness was expected, but even within those contexts, the actual literal thigh is not, and was never, ever, ever, ever considered nakedness. It was used euphemistically. And I think I beat that horse to death, brought it back to life and beat it some more. (laughs) Well, and, and there's a lot of, different directions we can take this too, because when you look at sexual ethics in the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is something we want to get into hopefully later this year or maybe next year, but even when you look at the sign of the covenant and you see in the, especially the Old Testament, when, for example, Abraham received circumcision as a sign of the covenant in Genesis 17, 10, and we read that, you know, we, throughout the whole Old Testament, of course, that is the sign showing that you are God's people is this idea of circumcision. But even when it came to making oaths with family members or with others, there was this idea of having to put your hand on someone's thigh. And most scholarship believes that this is literally talking about putting your, your hand on someone's testicles. Yes. And you're you're basically grabbing that uh to to make a <laughs> to make a covenant and sometimes you would basically they they would basically grab each other's testicles and they would make this covenant. And the idea of swearing on one's loins, grabbing each other's testicles is also found in other cultures as well. And the English word this may interest you, you may already know this. The English word testify is actually directly related to the word testicles. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Jewish tradition, of course, th- there are some different interpretations of this, but by and large, that's what most scholarship believes. And this goes even further with n- believing that only the, the men had the seed. And they were, this was a reproductive culture. It was a patriarchal yeah. reproductive culture. And the importance of having offspring and and making sure that that offspring is carried on, you know, they didn't understand women having eggs and they didn't understand the fertilization process. They didn't understand ancient or they didn't understand uh, sound reproductive biology. They had their ancient reproductive biological beliefs, which were based on agriculture. And so, so much of this is just intertwined. I mean, it's, it's, it's so layered and so deep. And yet we just want to go to the Bible and cherry pick Genesis three and John 21 and say, the Bible says that that settles it. And it's such a shoddy, irreverent, irreverent way of handling the Bible. And what, what blows my mind is, you know, I used to accuse people of not taking the Bible seriously when I was the one not taking the Bible seriously. I was trying to take shortcuts. I was the one not willing to go deep within the text and within the culture because I already had my mind made up. And as we've pointed out, we just take these verses to try to prove our points instead of really figure out, well, what's going on? What did what were the civilizations like back then? What did words mean to them? What if this was a euphemism? What was it a euphemism for? Why yeah. why was this important that that this be covered? Why were people making why were men making covenants with one another by grabbing each other's ball sacks? What's going on here, right? <laughs> I mean, this this isn't stuff you're going to hear from pulpits, uh, because yeah. quite frankly, the Bible, we want to censor the Bible. 
we want to censor the culture. We want to make it palatable to our day. And when we do that, we miss the context and thus we, we do not apply it correctly to our culture. Well, and we don't, dude. You're exactly right. Because I mean, talk about purity we, culture. Can you imagine going up and like all of us guys just grabbing each other's balls when we're making promises <laughs> to each other? That's why I'm glad we have contracts now that we can sign and enforce yeah. in courts, and we can we can keep our hands to ourselves. But yeah, no, I mean, no, I mean you're exactly right. And and for our listeners, if you want to see an example of this, look at Abraham. Whenever he wants to find a wife for Isaac, and he sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac, he sends him to his own people, and he finds Rebecca. He says that he placed his servant's hand under his thigh. He grabbed his servant's hand and put it on his own testicles. That's what happened. And he said, swear to me that you're going to find him a good woman from among my own people. And it's, it's so wild to me that, that we want to sanitize it. And I really think it's because we're driven to be right more than we really want to dig in deep, because if we dig too deep, it's good. It may, we may find information that proves that we're wrong, that our preconceptions are wrong, that we haven't been rightly dividing the word of truth. And then within that paradigm, what does that mean for us? Does that mean I'm a false teacher now that I'm going to face that stricter judgment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we've talked a lot about nakedness. We've talked about the thigh. We talked about very briefly, ancient conceptions of, of male nudity, I guess you could say. One, one more thing I was just going to point out to in Isaiah 24, it's along the same lines of what I said about Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, that you, you just get in that text and you probe around a little bit and you see that, you know, really it's it, the argument that's trying to be made is not even a good argument to begin with. But the same is true with Isaiah 20, verse 4, because if it's shameful to have your thigh exposed, and even if you were to read that as a literal thigh, well, it also says barefoot, that I'm going to send you out barefoot. So is it shameful to be barefoot? Is it nakedness to to be barefoot? Can you wear flip-flops? I mean, at what point, once again, if you're going to take these passages, if you're going to go to Genesis 3.21, if you're going to go to Isaiah chapter 20, verse 4, you have to be willing to, to to if you're going to try to make a make it analogous to today you have to be consistent with it you have to be consistent yeah. with your parallel and i've i've yet to meet anyone who is 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 really consistent based upon those passages say well this is what this means all the way to you know to you can't show you know it has to be from the shoulder all the way to your ankle you can't show your feet you have to wear sleeves you can't show your arms who's doing that and who's making those arguments no one ever historically made arguments like this and to to think that this is how the bible is supposed to be read that (laughs) to, to, to think that this is how i'm to come up with my my answers i mean that i don't know why i didn't stop for a moment and just step back and think, okay, really? Like, God, God is, and, and, and you know as well as I do, we would say God's going to send people to hell yeah. if, if they don't figure out this jigsaw puzzle. If they don't figure out exactly how everything is supposed to work with modesty, sorry, if you're two inches below, below the knee, you know, shame on you. You should have figured out gen- the Hebrew word in Genesis 3. Um, you know, you should have been able to dig a little deep. It's crazy. It's crazy. And then, when you do dig a little deeper, you realize that the arguments that were being made are not even there to begin with. So I don't know. It's, it's just, it, it, it frustrates me to know I used to make these kind of arguments. Well, and, and same here. I mean, it, and it's, it's Cause so, they're really stupid. Like a lot of my sermons were nothing but, uh, they were a lot of, uh, style. Quips. 
Yeah. You know, and, and, and honestly, I, I debated George Ramekin, and he nailed me back in 2010 when he said, Kevin, you've got a lot of style, but you have no substance. And man, that guy was right. Like, that, that's right. <laughs> it was putting a bunch of one-liners together, just just taking a bunch of Bible verses, memorizing them, and getting up there and spouting them out. And, 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 and it's stupid. I mean, to think that that's how... I studied and how I communicated, but that was how I was taught. That's how you were taught. And that's yeah. why we're doing what we're trying to, we're, we're, we're trying to, we're, we're trying to do penance for that. <laughs> we're, 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 try, we're trying to, to undress the, uh, the, the, the ugly arguments that we used to hey, use. There you go with your quips again, baby. We're, how we're, about we're, it? We're, we're stripping them bare tonight, you know, stripping them bare. well, and you know, we talked about how in, in, in that ancient context, we, we've talked about how men, could be naked in public. Like, and I mean like start, but naked in public in yeah. some context, they could be, I mean, that's, it's well games. known. Look at the games. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. But for women, it was a little bit different. And I'm glad you said what you did about Isaiah 20 and verse four, where it talks about the buttocks and it talks about being barefoot and everything else. And well, what about covering up the feet? Well, then what does that mean to, you know, does that mean you should only wear shoes? Well, can you wear high heels? I mean, how high can the heel be for a sister to wear? Because there are some really, really creepy dudes that get off on high heels. I mean, you know, how deep yeah, is prostit- that? Prostitutes go? wear high heels. I heard that girl, you know, yeah. women shouldn't wear high heels or they shouldn't wear boots with heels because, you know, that's what prostitutes wear. Yeah. And if you wear those, I want to circle back around to what Jesus said. You're going to call a man to lust after you. And if you do that, well, it's your fault that, that he's, he stumbles. But here's, what's interesting to me in the context in which Jesus made this statement, even if we assume that that framework and that paradigm of Matthew 27 or five and 27 is true. Even if we assume that that is accurate, let's just say for the sake of argument, just for grins this evening, that that's what that means. What did women wear during that time when Jesus said that? If a man looks on a woman, the lust after her in her heart or in his heart, then, you know, he commits adultery with her in his heart and, and she's sinful. She's responsible for that. If we just assume that that's the case, what is that woman wearing? She's not wearing fishnet hose, booty shorts, a halter top and in enough makeup to, to blot out the sun from reaching her face. She's not dressing that way. Satlow, in his article where he talks about ancient Jewish conceptions of of modesty and nakedness, he says that for women, and I'm not going to read everything that I have on that because we've gone really long, but for women in every public context, almost every single public context, except for strictly female contexts, if a woman had more than a hand breadth of skin exposed anywhere on her body, except for her hands or her face, it was considered extremely inappropriate. It was considered scandalous. In Greco-Roman culture, married women would cover their hair, but unmarried women would leave their hair uncovered. But in Hebrew culture, women kept their hair covered in all public contexts once they were of age. So you have women that are covering their hair. You have women that are covering their bodies. What kind of clothes did they wear? They wore clothes that were like long flowing robes that hid their shape. They weren't unlike some of the burqas that... that extremely fundamentalist Muslims. And I don't mean that term pejoratively, but it's like what a lot of Muslim women wear in the Middle East, but even more so. So when Jesus is saying, if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you're committing adultery with her in your heart. They're looking at women that are dressed in these long flowing, thick robes that are hiding their shape 
what that tells me is that, yes, most men are horny devils. Most men are pigs. I mean, they really are, if you think about it. I mean, it's the truth. You know it's true, bro. Come on. You know it's the truth. They are. I mean, that those are what these women are wearing. So the entire conception of you better dress right, those women back then in Jesus' day were dressing much, much, much more, quote, modestly than even the most modestly dressed women in our day and time now. Yeah. I, Furthermore, like you said, Jesus puts the onus on the man. If your eye causes you to sin, you're looking at a woman to lust, but hey, if your eyes causing you to sin, fellas, you need to pluck it out. You take responsibility for your sin. That entire concept of women being at fault for the sin of men's lust is blatantly anti-scriptural. It is wrong. It is flat wrong. It is evil. It is wrong. And it it it, it makes me angry even to this day. Yeah, so I'm going to read you something that is is pretty funny, and I think our audience will appreciate it too, especially coming from legalistic backgrounds, which I think a lot of our audience has, and we have. So Philip Yancey points this out, and he uh, he quotes this. He says, uh, Pharisees, or this is a quote from Philip Yancey. He said, Pharisees and teachers of the law, and this is talking about while Jesus lived and prior to Jesus, um, they had competed with one another in strictness. And they had actually taken God's law and put it into 613 rules, 248 commands, and 365 prohibitions. And then they ended up taking these rules, and they had 1,521 additions that, that like, like as far as they would go through and they would amend a lot of these laws, or they would clarify exactly what they meant. And so there was a lot to following the law. But to avoid sexual temptation... They had a practice of lowering their heads and not even looking at women. And this was before Jesus came on the scene, because we think Jesus is teaching new practices in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not. The the, prior to Jesus, they they believed that it was also wrong to uh, to lust after a woman. But in the context of Matthew five, there, you know, his point is he's saying there's a lot of you who have, haven't actually committed adultery, but you have in your heart. And there have even been, you know, a lot of Jews who believe that it was wrong, of course, to, to lust. I mean, that's stated in the 10 commandments. You're not to covet. And it's that idea of, of a strong desire, wanting, wanting something that is not yours or objectifying something for your pleasure. But he goes on to say, check this out, dude. This is hilarious. I mean, it's funny now. I mean, I'm sure it wouldn't have been funny back then. But to avoid sexual temptation, many Jews of Pharisees had a practice of lowering their heads and not even looking at women. The most strict of these were known as bleeding Pharisees because of frequent collisions with walls and other (laughs) obstacles. <laughs> and, oh my goodness. And so so you know when Jesus is talking here he's not simply saying don't physically look at a woman, right? I mean that that's and you're pointing this out, it's not not looking at a woman. It's not um you know, making sure that it's, you know, a woman is fully dressed so a man doesn't lust and it's all the woman's fault. No, it's what is going on in your heart. Yes. And, and and as a former, uh, so, someone who was, who was highly, highly addicted to the, to the practice of, of looking up 
internet pornography, which I know there's debate around, well, is that an addiction or not? Well, I, I was addicted, um, just like I was addicted to food. Um, but as, as far as just the practice itself, something that I wanted to stop that I couldn't, you know, one, one of the things is it was all about the heart, right? I mean, that it was, it was, it's easy it's easy to say, oh, but I'm not committing adultery or, oh, I'm not actually going through with the actual act. The point Jesus was making is that you, you can undress, and I could undress a woman out in public regardless of what she was wearing. It didn't matter if it was summertime or wintertime. You know, I, I could look at a woman and lust for her in my heart. The amount of clothing that she was wearing or not wearing was not going to dictate if I wanted to undress a woman in my heart and in my mind. And, and, and that's the point that Jesus is stressing here is he's telling men to take hold of their responsibilities in life when it comes yeah. to what they think about. And, 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 and this isn't just a quick you know, fault. This isn't just admiring someone or acknowledging, you know, the second you get married, I don't, I don't quit recognizing that there are women out there who are beautiful. It's that that's no longer my focus or that should have never been my focus. That's not what I'm, with, yeah. uh, that's not what I'm obsessing over. I'm not going to objectify those women. And that's what was going on. No, that's exactly what was going on. And, and to that point, I heard a preacher once say, and I've always thought this was good. I've always thought that, And I still do. You can't help it if a bird flies over your head, but it's completely up to you if that bird lands in your hair and builds a nest. Mm, and, yeah. and I think, and I think that's true. You can't help it if you're going to have an errant thought. If you appreciate the God-given beauty that someone has, and and you see it, it, it to notice it, recognize it, and move on. That's human. That's not sinful in and of itself at all. But to dwell on it, and like you said, to undress someone with your eyes, to lust after them in your heart. That's where Jesus draws that line, and. As we begin to draw this to a close, if what you just said about this being an issue of the heart, I believe that's exactly what Paul is communicating to Timothy way back there. What we open this podcast up with there in first Timothy two, I really believe that that is the point that Paul is making. So at the end of this, we want to ask the question, well, if the thigh isn't nakedness and if that whole construct just falls apart, if modesty is this culturally situated concept, well, then how do we make that application to our culture whenever their culture was so vastly different than ours? And I think in, in one sense, it takes a lot of wisdom to do so. But I think recognizing that that is at the heart of what's being communicated, when you do that, it's it's all going to take care of itself. I mean, if the thigh isn't nakedness and if modesty isn't this big thing and blah, 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 well, then what do we do with first Timothy two, what do we do with that admonition that Paul gives to these Christian women that they need to put on modest apparel? So it, as we wrap this up, I'd like to go back to that and just kind of go through what Paul is telling Timothy, what the context is before we do that. Is there anything else you want to touch on? No, no, we, we can hit on that. I, I guess I will say this cause I don't know if there'll be time afterwards, but I was just going to bring up the point too, that so much is cultural and I know you're going to get into that with First Timothy 2, but even today, think of the different societies and civilizations, obviously not in, in America, uh, but in other parts of the world where women do actually go around with their breast fully exposed. And there's yeah. it's there, there's nothing. It's I mean, not sexualized it. it's, it's at not all. at all. And it's, you know, that's just their culture. That is their civilization. That is what they do. Men aren't going around. And, you know, just staring and, and, oh, you know, in fact, it, 
you know, in, in some ways I have heard missionaries say it takes away from some of that taboo-ness that we have attached in the West, especially in America, especially within Americanized Christianity, that almost brings more attention. I mean, that's the way it was growing up with cussing. I mean, you were told, don't listen to cuss, don't listen to cussing, don't listen to cussing, that anytime I, I, I heard something in a TV program, that's all I would hear, and I would start looking for it. Because when you tell yourself not to look for something, you're actually training your mind to look for it. Uh, and yeah. so it's the same way psychologically with 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 lust and modesty and those types of things. And that's something that I have had some very interesting conversations with with a friend of mine who's a psychologist is when you constantly train someone, you know, don't think this, don't look at this, don't, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You are actually training your brain to do those things. Yeah. <laughs> and it worse. Yeah, you're you're making it worse, and then you're feeling even more guilt when you're like, "Oh, I shouldn't have thought about that," and and I don't need to think about that. I don't need to think about that. I don't need to think about it. Well, when I'm constantly thinking about not thinking about it, I'm thinking about it, yeah. and 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 that's how fear works. That's how worry works. That's how anxiety works. I mean, depression. We could get into a whole lot of, of different areas in that. But anyway, I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, don't think about a purple elephant riding a tricycle. Yeah. What are you thinking about now? Purple elephant riding a tricycle. I mean, it's exactly. But what do we do with First Timothy 2? What do we do with that? So let's go back to verse 1. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage through verse 10. So First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. And I'm reading now from the New Revised Standard Version. The Apostle Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed as a herald and as an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. I desire then... That in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. So what we see here in the too long didn't listen part of this <laughs> is Paul is talking about the state of your heart. He's not talking about literally what you wear. He, he may be in some sense, and there is an application that can be made that we'll get there in a minute, but he's not making the case that you need to make sure that your body's covered from your shoulders to your thighs. When Paul says, I desire then in verse eight, whenever he says that men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or argument, that's an indicator that that statement being made references something that came before it. So what comes before verse eight in the very beginning, he talks about prayer and thanks or prayer and giving thanks being made for all men. He talks about how he wants everybody to have the mindset, everybody who follows God to have the mindset of wanting the best for somebody, for wanting the best of everybody, for making supplication, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. He wants us to pray for kings who are in high positions so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Well, think about this. 
At that point, kings and rulers, they didn't care much for Christians. It wouldn't be long before, and this was written during a time of uh, the ramping up of some heavy persecution. Paul is saying these people that are persecuting you, you need to pray for them. You need to pray for their best good. You need to pray that they will come to their senses. Pray that they'll leave us alone. Pray that we can have a quiet and peaceable life, that we can live a dignified life, and that we can be godly in our life. That's what God wants for us. And that ties into what Jesus said in Matthew 5, where he says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, even those who are in power. He says, I desire that in every place, in verse 8, men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument, also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess um, reverence for God. So the instructions are given to men to pray everywhere. Make prayer a part of your everyday life. Be mindful with your life. Have no fear or shame of the gospel, but notice that men are to put off anger and argument. King James puts it as wrath and doubting. They are to put on holy hands. God wants men to fundamentally transform themselves because as a man, whenever I see injustice, I'm going to get angry at that injustice. Whenever I see my brothers and sisters, the people I love, my family being persecuted, I'm probably going to fear some of that persecution myself, but I'm going to be incensed at the persecution that the people I love and that I'm in community with and that I'm living my life with are suffering at the hands of these people. My initial response is going to be to lay down the law and you know, maybe even become a vigilante and take up retribution on behalf of those that have been wronged. That is my knee-jerk response, and I think that's encoded within most men to various degrees. But God says don't do that. You need to put off those things that get in the way of being the people that God has called you to be. Put away that anger, put away that argument, and be mindful towards those people. Change fundamentally, or allow rather, the Holy Spirit to change fundamentally who you are so that you can be more like Jesus. In like manner also, the King James says, also women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing. Suitable clothing, in my mind, means suitable to the occasion. It means it works in the same way that Christian men are to make a fundamental change in who they are. Christian women are to do the same thing. Men are called to overcome the worst of the core aspects of their nature. Women are called to overcome their vanity, their self, uh, what's the word, Um, self-consciousness about maybe what they're wearing. They're supposed to stop looking at each other and judging each other. I mean, if, and and this is a caricature, I know it is, and it may come across as sexist and I hope it doesn't because I don't mean it that way. But if I show up someplace and I'm wearing the same shirt as another dude there, we're going to laugh about it and high five each other. We may even take a picture together. There are some women, if they show up wearing the same outfit, they get angry at each other about it. That's the kind of behavior that Paul is telling these women. You don't need to worry about that stuff. They're called to overcome the vanity of the pursuit of their own beauty in favor of being modest with what they wear. And modesty doesn't just mean covering your shoulders to your knees. What modesty means is kind of like Walter Payton. He's one of the best receivers that, that ever played the game of football. And Anytime he was interviewed, he would always give credit to his offensive line for protecting him so that he could run the ball. That's modesty. Don't use your clothing or dress to draw attention to yourself. Don't go peacocking up to try to one-up each other. 
do what verse 10 says, put on good works. He tells them what to stop focusing on all of this other stuff, all of this vain, natural beauty, but put on good works. I really believe that you can make the case that Paul is talking about literal clothing, but I also believe more strongly that he's speaking metaphorically because we see these metaphors being used in other places in first Peter three and three, where he says, don't adorn yourself outwardly by braiding your hair, wearing gold and all that stuff, but let your adornment be the inner self and the lasting beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, put on a gentle and quiet spirit in Colossians three, the Bible talks about how you're not supposed to have these things in your life that war against your soul, put to death fornication and impurity and passion and evil and desire and greed on account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. Colossians three and verses five and six. He talks about getting rid of those things, getting rid of anger, getting rid of wrath, getting rid of malice and slander and abusive language. Don't lie to one another. Seeing you've stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. Clothe yourselves, he says in verse 12, as God's chosen ones, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. So you see, this is something that can be used metaphorically, and I really believe it is. I believe the context supports that reading much better. And whenever we take First Timothy 2 and we make it about a dress code, when we make it about what we should and shouldn't wear, whenever we make it about why women shouldn't wear pants, <laughs> we miss the point of what God is calling us to do. Shed those things that get in the way of being Jesus to the world and put on good works. Be the kind of people you've been called to be. It's not about what you wear. Yeah. No, I mean, I really don't have much to add, man. I feel like you did a great job. I said uh, it was. I said I was going to come undone, come unglued on this one a little bit. Preach, so. preach, brother. Just keep oh, on, yeah. keep keep it going, man. No, I mean, I, you know, I would just add too that this was during a misogynistic time period, and when I say misogynistic. They didn't understand it was misogynistic because the cultural sensitivities that we have and even moral sensitivities that have been developed since that time were not realized then. Yeah. And and so women were viewed as second class citizens. This is something that this was the civilization that they lived in. And I, I think that that also plays a factor in some of this as well. And I mean, there is a lot of misogynistic text, which, uh, by the way, Lee, I'm going to talk about that in my book. Oh, uh, it's it, coming, it, you guys. It's <laughs> coming out quick. Oh, um, baby. it's a dandy. I have a final draft. I have the final copy. It's on my Kindle and I'm about to dig into it. You guys are going to love this book. It is fantastic. No, but 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 I, that is one of the biggest questions that my book, seeks to address and that that I really spent a lot of time trying to figure out is how can I be honest with what the Bible actually says, but also with with reality and the knowledge that we now have both as individuals, but also as a society. Yeah. And what what do I do with that? You know, when do, do I become dishonest with with a text and try to change it to say something else? Do I uh, ignore the context of the Bible and trade that for 
for what I now know to be true. What what do I do? How do I appropriate that today? And that's really where the rubber meets the road in any topic, in any subject, in anything, when we're dealing with how we should approach the scripture and apply it to our day and time. What does that look like, pra- you know, practically speaking? I mean, it's one yeah. thing to give generalities, but what does that actually mean? And what does that actually look like? And I just wanted to pull up, point out one more inconsistency with a lot of more of our probably fundamentalist, uh, I won't say crowd because they may or may not be listening to us, but those who are more fundamental in their understanding of scripture and trying to teach on modesty and how a woman shouldn't be trying to, 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 to gain the attract, get, gain the attention of men or whatever it might be. But what's ironic, some of the women I know who are very outspoken on the topic of modesty, very conservative, uh, they also dress very nicely. They are very nice. They they have uh, they wear makeup. <laughs> they they take care of themselves. And you know, one of the questions I asked this has been several years ago. I said, you know, you're condemning women because you think that they're dressing in certain ways and that that's attractive and that could be tempting men and you're 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 teaching against that and I said but what are you doing I said you yourself are dressing up you yourself are putting on makeup you're going and you're you're you're, you're you know your hair you're taking a lot of time in this instance this was someone who was younger and they were dyeing their hair they were coloring their hair highlighting their hair i said are you not doing all of these things because you want to look good even though even though you're married to someone you know, should you just be ugly to the outside world? Should you not put on any makeup? Should you? And 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 I know that's where really a lot of you know the Pentecostals come from is well, we don't we just want to yeah. look pl- plain. And and I'm not saying it to be mean, but they're, what they're saying is we don't want to we don't want to be anything other than just natural. And and we don't we we tr- we purposefully tr- you know it's the same thing with 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 Amish folks, right? I mean, it's the same thing with Mennonites. We're trying to look natural. And they have even used the word plain. That's not my word, but that's words I that's have used. That's their word. That and their you word, know, yeah. we, we want to look plain. And what they're saying is we don't want to, to do anything to make us stand out. And to be consistent, you actually have to go that route. I mean, they are at least being more consistent by not putting on makeup, by not really trying to fix their hair, by not dyeing their hair or putting highlights in their hair, by not going and tanning or whatever it might be. And I mean, you can really get into a lot of this when or see a lot of inconsistencies because some will say, well, it's wrong to tan because you shouldn't, you should just accept yourself the way God made you. It's like, well, can you not try to lose weight? Can you not try to to go to the gym and and exercise? I mean, yeah, you can argue it's it's for health, but I mean, you're obviously going to look better when you do these things. You're yeah. gonna you're gonna be more appealing physically. So, should you not do those things? I mean, this leads into so many different questions and arguments and inconsistencies. And most people want to make this such a simple, straightforward issue and say, well, the Bible says that we should be modest and modesty is from the shoulder to the knee. And all of that is just simply not true. As a friend of mine used to say, there's a Greek word for that. It's called a bunch of baloney. 
<laughs> well, dude, one thing that I would count and baloney's not a Greek word, by the way. I just want it's not. Just but you wanna... you throw that on the smoker though, it's delicious. It is. But oh yeah, smoke baloney. Sign me up for that. But one thing that I would push back on about what you were saying though is the idea that you know in order you know we're dressing this way so we don't stand out, and that that is contextually part of the definition of modesty. It's to dress appropriately, dress yeah. in a way that you don't stand out. I mean, you you know, if you go to church, you're going to dress appropriately for the occasion. That doesn't mean you have to dress up to the nines. If your church is more casual, it may be more appropriate to dress more casually. If you're going to the beach, you're not going to wear a three-piece suit. I mean, maybe you will. Who knows? If you're going to a backyard barbecue, you're not going to wear a wedding dress. But the irony is, is that whenever you dress in so much of the garb of you know, the long denim skirts or, you know, long sleeves, long pants when it's 110 degrees in the shade outside. Whenever you dress that way, you draw attention to yourself. Yeah, you you are by and, definition in mind. Oh, no, no, I agree. Yeah. And that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you're actually that's being me of it. Yeah. You're actually the like if when I go out somewhere, you know, and you can always tell where, where the Mennonite women are. Right. I mean, they stick yeah. out like a sore thumb. There are more people talking about the, the, the Mennonite women than there are any of the other women there. I'm not. I, why? Because they stick out like everyone knows who they are. And and, you know, but the point I was making is if you believed that if that was what you believed that modesty was about making sure you're not you're you're, you're not um making yourself standing out physically appealing not necessarily standing out in yeah. comparison but just not fixing yourself up then yeah. the, then then the most consistent thing would be no makeup you cover yourself up hide yourself so on and so forth. That would be the most consistent. But even most yes. of the women who believe that, who are the most conservative, they still are going to put on makeup. They're still going to fix their hair. They're going to wear, you know, clothing. I mean, they're not just going to go around and wear uh, rags. I mean, they're going to try to find something that they think they look good in, and and rightly so. I mean, rightly yeah. so. And that's what's crazy about this. I, I mean, it, it, you know, it's just that once again that inconsistency. And as you pointed out. That's not even biblical modesty. I mean, they're not. They're not only is that not biblical modesty, that's not even consistent with a with a with a quasi modesty that they believe in. <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, and that's what's so wild to me is you know I I actually heard it preached once that you need to dress modestly because it's not our place to draw attention to ourselves. And then later on in the sermon, he said, "This is the way you need to dress." So that people can wreck because our sisters, you know, you can't preach in church and you can't teach publicly. And this can be your witness to other people. You can show the world that you belong to God by dressing this way. And I'm thinking, didn't you just say 15 minutes ago that you don't need to dress in a way that draws attention to yourself? And now you're saying dress this way so you can draw attention to yourself. It, it boggles the mind. But the point being, the entire concept of modesty that exists within so many of the far, far, far heavy conservative uh, denominations that exist so much of that it's it's based on a poor reading of scripture it's based on poor hermeneutics and whenever you really dig into those arguments you see they just fall apart and i i, I really think we've covered what we wanted to cover we went about 45 minutes longer than i was really hoping we would but it was still a good conversation do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap it up no, no, I think it was a good conversation and I want to hear what our audience thinks because there's a lot of follow up we can do with this. And so if you do have questions, uh, there, there's just so many directions this can go. I would like to hear from you as the audience to see what you think, but also 
what direction you would like for us to go next on this topic. Yeah, because we, we would love to talk about this more. I have roughly 33 pages of, of other assorted notes on this subject, and I condensed it to seven, and I was really hoping to keep it to two, and I failed miserably at that. So if there are other concepts that you've heard, other arguments that you've heard, holler at us. Send send us a message on Facebook. Email us. That's the best way to get a hold of us. Kevin got locked out of our email account for a while, so if you have reached out to us and you haven't been able to, uh, you haven't got a reply yet. Um, it's not because it's we're ignoring fault. you. It, well, it's not just Kevin's <laughs> fault. I've been terribly busy and I try to keep up with it. We both keep up with the email very, very well, but whenever it's let, whenever it's left to just one of us, there's a lot that falls through the cracks. So we apologize for the timeliness of our replies, but we promise we'll get back to you. But yeah, we want to hear from you. Send us your thoughts, send us your questions. If there's anything else you'd like for us to discuss on this topic, we would love to. This is one that Kevin and I are both pretty passionate about. And we appreciate you all. Um, give us that like on Facebook. Please like our Facebook page. I had to create a whole new one since I got hacked last year and my Facebook got torpedoed. Uh, join our discussion board on Facebook. We're going to be giving away uh, Tiffany's book, Tiffany Yecky Brooks. Her book, Gaslighted by God, comes out later this month. We will be giving away five copies of that book to our listeners, but we're doing that on our Facebook page. Whenever Kevin's book comes out, we'll also be giving away copies of that book. And our good friend Daniel Rogers is releasing a book later this fall. We'll be giving away copies of that as well. So we really, really would like to have you guys help us build our audience by liking our page, sharing our page, giving us that five-star review on iTunes is huge. Sharing our podcast on social media, sharing it via email. I mean, put it on a, on a cassette tape and mail it to your aunt Ethel, who doesn't even know how to use a computer. Just help us spread the word. We really want to get this out there and we're getting it out there. It's growing all the time and it's largely thanks to you guys sharing it. Thank you all so much. We appreciate you all. We wish you all a good night.